Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording February 25th, 2022, we're taking stock of the unfolding military conflict in Ukraine with retired Lieutenant General Mike Day, former commander of the NATO Response Forces and a CGAI fellow. Mike, welcome back to Defense Deconstructed. Yeah, thanks very much, Dave. Happy to be here. So we're having this uh, conversation uh, just around midday, uh, February 25th, Eastern time, uh, as we're watching some pretty dynamic uh, events unfold in Ukraine. Um, just to situate for folks the, the snapshot in time about which we're, we're recording this. Um, what's your sense, uh, broadly speaking, about what we've seen unfold in the last several days and where, where, where we're at right now? Dave, um, I, I think we've got to sort of set the stage to begin with, because as you said, what's our sense of, because that's all we can have at the moment. You know, we know in the best of circumstances, initial reporting is not always going to be accurate. And I don't blame the media or the press for that, but just rather access, perspective, et cetera. Um, so let's, let's start with a, a couple of scene setters, if we will. There are things we know. There are things that we think we know that are becoming clear. And there's some things we absolutely don't know. But I would start with um, two in what I consider to be two inescapable conclusions. Uh, and then I'll sort of give some sense of why I think that's, that's to be true. First of all, despite some reporting and some claims of possible uh, Ukrainian tactical victories, you know, et cetera, there is absolutely no scenario where the Ukrainian military, the conventional formed military, is able to beat the Russian military, right? There, there is no scenario. Can they inflict damage? Can they do some delaying? Can they have some regionally tactically isolated success? Absolutely. Um, but in the, in the long run, um, they cannot win. Any critique and analysis that we hear in public that says, oh, that's looking good, et cetera, that is naive. It's ill-informed. It's wishful thing. I'd be tremendously skeptical of any analysis that start up. The second conclusion is, and it is based on the first, it is only a matter of time before Russia surges sufficient destructive military power to formally defeat the conventional Ukrainian military, right? Therefore, it's only a matter of time before we see uh, a bloodier, quite frankly, uh, transition to a Ukrainian resistance of some shape or form. I think those are the only two inescapable conclusions we can, we can reach. So where do we have some, some clarity? Uh, we have some initial clarity uh, on sort of the Russian uh, attacks at the moment, right? We've, we've seen it happen into the north, the east, and the south. We've seen it on, on, uh, on all components uh, being, uh, being involved and participate, right? They, um, it's pretty clear that they're following, in relative sense, the same macro approach they did in Crimea and Donbass, in that they're following major communication lines, major roads, rails, sea, et cetera, meaning they're not doing this great big push against the Northwest frontier, across the fields. They're not destroying big civil infrastructure at, at this stage, et cetera. Um, they're avoiding all of that. 
but a combination of perhaps a more robust defense than they had anticipated, um, not a terribly concentrated priority of effort. For the size of their force, they actually have a really, really wide footprint, right? Encompasses, you know, a geographic um, territory that is, is pretty significant. And NIST reports that not all Russian military forces are performing at the level they would want. So that's going to undoubtedly create a change uh, and a pace. Now, some people, and I've read some reporting already that says Russia is um, being forced to change. I just think that just fails to absolutely capture what's happened. For Russia is now undoubtedly going to initiate a contingency or branch plan based on the initial success that they've had and failure, their assessment of the battlefield, and they'll move on to the next approach to make sure that they maintain momentum, et cetera. And I think we're already seeing reporting that this will include a couple of things, right? They'll surge more forces in. They'll be less discriminate in terms of uh, the targets they're choosing. We're already seeing um, photographic evidence of hospitals and critical civil infrastructure, not dual use, not things that are being used by both the military and civilian, but purely civilian targets are, are, are being hit. And you're starting to see, we'll see less discriminatory weapon use. So whereas at the front end, we saw a real attempt to be precise, to be um, focused, not, I wouldn't say constrained, but focused, and to, to be um, concentrating on military targets, we're beginning to see that widen in scope, damage, et cetera. That's becoming clear. But there are a couple of things that are, I think, remain unclear, right? Access by the press, and I'm not suggesting they're being inaccurate, but they can only see the world through a straw. It's like watching a football game by having a camera focused only on the quarterback. You don't see where the ball goes. You don't see the defense. You don't see the receiver. So you're only going to see what's available. And I think that that allows for the situation to not yet be clear uh, in terms of how this is, is going to work. Um, which of those Russian incursions are real efforts, which are holding efforts to dilute the Ukrainian response, which are deceptions? Uh, which will be reinforced, which are going to strike further into the heartland? Uh, are they going to occupy major cities? None of that is clear based on what we're currently seeing. And so although we're beginning to see some indications where they've had success, it's not clear yet if that's reinforcing battlefield success or the execution of a plan. So to extrapolate from that, leads us to the thing that we absolutely don't know. And what we don't know is, what are Putin's objectives? You know, we could suggest that he's being a maximalist, meaning he's gonna get as much as he can, right? As opposed to have a set series of objectives that he's gonna to drive to, regardless of the cost, or stop at regardless of future opportunity. I, I think, you know, a reasonable analysis would suggest there's a continuum of, Here's the minimum, here's the maximum, et cetera. The maximum would be the complete occupation and control of the Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine will not be controlled nor fully occupied with the current force in place. So we don't know that. And we should all remind ourselves of if, if there are only really two absolute knowns, one is 
there are no preordained outcomes of war. And secondly, nobody's ever been successful in identifying what Putin is going to do next, ever. So those are the things that I think we know, the things that we've got some clarity on, but they're not, they're not really clear. And the things we absolutely don't know, I suspect the second category will move towards the first. As time goes on, we'll see patterns, we'll see reinforcing, et cetera. There were a couple of miscellaneous comments I, I would um, add on to set the stage before we talk about consequences and, and everything else. Um, we foreshadowed, and I said, this move to a second phase of the war where the Ukrainian conventional military is going to be essentially defeated in the field. That doesn't mean to say that they're not going to have some national capability and capacity to continue to prosecute um, some kind of armed conflict. We can't call it an insurrection because it's not against their own government, but think of it as a guerrilla type activity in the broadest definition, quite frankly, of, of that term. Um, and I would say to you, there's consequence to that, right? Because we're now seeing phase, the macro phase two of this conflict, not emerging, but now being foreshadowed. It is inevitable and that's got real consequence. So whereas Canada and NATO's reaction has been initially about deterring, although I would argue everybody has known we can't deter Putin, it's now about support to Ukraine materially and defense of NATO, there's actually going to be this third stage, which is what happens when it moves to this low intensity guerrilla type of affair where Ukrainians are going to fight uh, the invaders, Russian, who have some relatively semi-permanent presence without actually controlling things. So I think that's what we're, we're going to continue to see. The last thing I would say um, in the reporting and the commentary about um, and I understand why there's there's a lot of publicity being given to street level protests in Russia. You know, the, the you know, the, the common woman or man in Russia is against the war, etc. Um, I would caution anybody to believe that Putin's grip of the security apparatus and the relatively small size of those protests in comparison to the Russian population would suggest that he is going to face uh, has any vulnerability uh, to a popular uprising, that's not going to be the solution. I guess there is a black swan option that might allow um, the oligarchs to gather together and go, he screwed us out of literally tens of billions of dollars and so there we're going to get rid of Putin. Assassination would be the only um, option there. But quite frankly, I, I don't think any of those should be given much credence at, at this stage at all. I really think that you know, if we're going to talk about those, we should we should issue out foil caps, put them firmly on our heads, uh, and and only at, at that stage can we you know, sort of have that conversation. So, anyways, David, I, I think that sort of captures, if I will, our start state based on sort of uh, additional conversation we want to have. If, if we hold on the uh, aluminum foil oriented conversation, just think of focus on what's unfolded so far, I guess, from your perspective, how would you characterize the scope and the scale of what Russia's done and, and to help kind of contextualize the size and sophistication of it? Uh, and I guess also, what's your perspective about how much planning went into this um, as a uh, without your background strikes me that this wasn't the kind of a back of a napkin uh, type of exercise. And there's been 
a fair amount of forethought to this point in time. Right. So, so it, those kind of conversations always start and finish with logistics. You don't put 200,000 people into the field and sustain them and build them up for weeks on end, just living without significant multi, multi, multi months in planning, in preparation, in acquisition, in pre-positioning, et cetera. And so if, if there was nothing else, the idea that um, he could conjure up 200,000, and, and let's not dispute the figures, whether it's 130, 170, 200, 230, the difference there is nominal, quite frankly, in terms of the logistical effort. Um, that requires a significant, deliberate planning process with significant money, time, effort, and, and reallocation of capacity from other things to that. So that would indicate to us that this is a plan. Those plans are predicated on employment. The disposition, we already talked about the troops in Belarus, the, the, the troops on the Eastern side and the troops on the Southern side. Um, that logistics plan is a consequence of a deployment foot, footprint. And so these combat elements have been deliberately designed to go to certain locations. That has to take place before the logistics plan is in place. That's a number couple of months. And so if you're gonna work backwards from the, the first day that we start to see combat formations arrive on the Ukrainian perimeter on, on the border, you know, as a minimum, you know, we're talking six months and six months, quite frankly, would be a push. I, I'm not sure given the size, given everything else going on that they could, could actually get it done in six months. So this isn't back of the napkin for logistical reasons alone. Uh, secondly, we've seen um, episodic, but now as always in hindsight, and you can only be that way, uh, episodic attacks in terms of the informations campaign, information operations campaign, and the cyber campaign that have been clearly tied to culminate in advance of uh, crossing the border, et cetera. So that takes a bunch of planning. And then, of course, the timing and the coordination of the various precision missile strikes and everything else that's going on. What I'm trying to do is pick points of activity to, to highlight the complexity of this undertaking, um, the size of the force needed, and the time needed to bring that all together into a, a coherent campaign plan, because that's what we're seeing. The other thing we're, we're going to see, uh, and this is again not back of the napkin, which is the difference be, uh, between being forced to change and enacting contingencies. So part of the planning process is not just to arrive at the border. Part of the planning process is how they would actually attack, they're doing now. Part of that planning process includes a series of contingency and branch plans. When things change, or we're about to enact another set of objectives, we enact another plan. That's obviously evergreen, meant it's, it's kept ongoing, reviewed cyclically, et cetera, but you don't launch until you have those contingency plans, not only in place, but fully briefed and fully understood, et cetera, with a series of indicators. So this is, this is not precipitated by 
Putin deciding in the last two to three weeks, you know, that he is morally compelled to defend the Russian speaking people on the eastern side of the Ukraine, that Nazis have taken over. We all know that to be empty rhetoric. But the fact that, you know, um, these reasons, this rationale are Johnny come lately to the battle, just merely indicates that, that they really are a fig leaf. And if you were to characterize what we're seeing militarily uh, for a non-Western force, I guess, what, what's the, what kind of analog would you suggest is the right comparator to contextualize what we're seeing play out right now? Okay, so let's, let's deal with some, some geographic facts, right? And, and, and perhaps one of the, one of the um, more recent opportunities to compare them is to, to look at the difference between Ukraine and Iraq, right? So um, let, let's look at the, and, and I've sort of just pulled up a, a, a couple of, of stats here, just in terms of, of size of population, et cetera, right? So, you know, the Ukrainian population and the Iraqi population is relatively similar, slightly over 40 million, right? Um, but that's kind of where the similarity ends, right? And also the type of force that's being used in terms of the 200,000 Americans, undoubtedly, and I'm not talking about individual ability effectiveness, but undoubtedly the American military represents the high watermark in terms of sophistication of weaponry, um, the ability to bring mass effects, et cetera. What we are seeing for the first time since the second world war, um, when we, the Western world are not perpetuating the battle, is to be not on the receiving end, but watching someone else initiate a, um, a significant, a sophisticated, I'll be careful when they say modern, modern approach to battle. I, I would argue that their approach to date has not been, it's, at least the reporting has not indicated that the Russians are attacking it like the Americans attacked uh, Iraq, et cetera. Now, there might be reasons for this. There are reasons that they, as we talked about, they want to protect infrastructure, civilian populations, et cetera, et cetera. But it is remarkable that for the first time since the end of the Second World War, we are seeing a non-NATO allied country embark on essentially a state level war with all the tools of the state being employed. I'd uh, made a comment to friends of mine recently that effectively this is the first time in the sort of the CNN era where Western Canadian interests have been on the opposite end of a missile salvo. Right. Yeah, they have. Um, and, and it's, we're not just on the, 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 um, on the opposite end. We're not quite on the receiving end, et cetera. Um, but we're on, we're on a, a privileged platform, not just to evaluate what they're doing, but how it looks from the outside compared to how it looks like when you're involved, right? Um, so, you know, through fresh eyes, you look at different targeting cycles. You look at different, uh, you look at the population. You know, we, we talked about the population side, size. We, we should remind ourselves that, um, and again, I'm just sort of drawing up some stats here as we're, as I'm looking at it, the uh, Iraq's, physical size about 438,000 kilometers, square kilometers. Uh, Ukraine is 603. 
it's almost a third bigger, right? Um, the population is significantly more advanced in terms of industrial base, in terms of physical infrastructure, in terms of education, in terms of being a global partner, et cetera. Um, and yet you could argue that the Russian uh, attacks, the incursions are actually not equal to what the American-led coalition put into Iraq. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about um, some of uh, what we're seeing come out already in terms of response uh, from, from the West uh, and from NATO specifically, uh, and then some potential options for what we might do in the future. So to, to focus first uh, in terms of what NATO is doing. So just before we were sat down to have this conversation, seeing some reporting from uh, NATO headquarters that uh, NATO is looking to activate uh, its response force. Uh, you've got some particular firsthand perspective on that. So talk a little bit about what that particular measure coming from the Alliance signifies and, and what that means more broadly uh, for how NATO's thinking about its Eastern flank. Right, you're right, David. NATO has come out pretty strongly today on a number of different fronts. Um, there's actually been a consolidated statement by the heads of state of all NATO nations. Um, and it is, you know, they put out a formal press release. It's, it's out on online and everything else. Um, and the language in there is, it, it certainly in my time of paying attention to NATO and everything else, dating well past 20 years, is as strong as anything I have seen, almost by orders of magnitude. Reminding ourselves that in order to get a statement like that, it is a unanimous statement one member state, and it doesn't matter if it's the Americans or it's the Italians or, or the Estonians, they all have a veto. They all have a red line pen. They can, and, and by the way, Canada has used that red line pen in previous statements. And so they are coming up and they have activated the NATO response force. My, my last job before, uh, before I took my uniform off was I commanded the NATO response force during its training and certification process. And, um, you know, this is, this is again, historic. This is the first time it's been activated. Um, and, and it really represents um, a statement of where NATO is in terms of the measures it's willing to take. Just some, some brief background on the NATO response force. So it, it flips between two joint force headquarters, one up in Brunson, one down in Naples. And it's in a two-year cycle. You, you essentially prepare for a year and then you assume responsibility for a year as a headquarters. I obviously worked out of Naples at the time. And the constitution of that comes from a series of NATO troop contributing nations. And it is a joint task force. So during my time, as an example, I had the uh, German-Dutch Corps, my land component headquarters and main combat element. The Spanish fleet was my maritime component. And the French Air Force and the French Air Force headquarters was my joint Air Force component commander. Poland provided the special operations component command with plugins, et cetera. And then everything gets augmented. Now, this is a force, it's a, it's a, it is a sizable force. It's obviously given its constituent parts. It's very combat capable um, because it comes from national forces, right? It's not a standalone piece. Um, but it's more of a vanguard. We need to think of it as, given its size, I, I think, I think we, we counted up the allocated forces the year that I commanded. 
it, it's not huge. It's something north of 30,000, but certainly less than 40,000, which to many people sounds like an eye-watering large number of people to command. But in military terms, um, you know, it's not that, that big. And NATO knows that, but it's not meant to be the main force. It's meant to be the vanguard force. It's meant to go to a location to augment whichever NATO country it's deployed into to work hand in glove with them. It's meant to give NATO additional time. It is of note, therefore, that they've been activated. They're being activated for a couple of reasons. I, I think due diligence and an abundance of caution suggests that if there was ever a time to activate them, when Russia is invading another country on your eastern flank, not quite sure you could think of a better time, but it's also a message to Russia. If you go back even 14 months ago, there would be real doubt whether or not America would have had the WASTA, the, the, you know, not just the authority and power and persuasion, but if they would actually have the willingness to actually bring this together in a coherent whole. And although NATO uh, is not commanded by Americans in terms of foreign policy, everybody has a veto. If American isn't there, if it isn't leading on initiative, it does not happen. Um, so it is quite remarkable to me that in the space of 14 months, you have had American leadership that essentially denigrated NATO. You could you could make a great argument that actively work towards its, its diminution, its dissolving, everything else, that today you have a coherent, focused, forceful statement from all NATO heads of state, and you have the NRF activated. So this has been, um, this has not been, I wouldn't call it a wake-up call, but this has been a unifying moment, if you will, for NATO, et cetera. And to, to think a little bit about what potentially other, so other than kind of the, the signaling uh, in a couple different respects that you were just touching on there, um, what types of things might we think that that force or military contributions from other, uh, setting aside the sanctions, that's a whole other discussion, but on the, on the actual military force side, thinking about what um, NATO countries, uh, Canada included, might do uh, both to reinforce uh, or provide support for NATO itself versus in Ukraine. Um, yeah. What types of things might we think happen? I say this in part because you're seeing, you know, some calls uh, to have uh, the imposition of a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Um, I, I presume that uh, you don't think the NATO response force is, is going to be uh, taking on that particular task, but what are some possibilities here for what we might want to do recognizing that I think our collective interest uh, would be that if you're going to move into what you we were describing when we started talking about of Ukraine being in kind of a, a longer term scenario of, of having a, a non-conventional fight against the Russians, um, that's the side of this particular conflict upon which we'd be on. So what are the options potentially? Okay, so, so every conversation with NATO in Europe should should start with a reminder that NATO is uh, a defensive organization. Its mandate in Europe is the defense of NATO territory, right? So when we think about what might be done, uh, we think about what might NATO troop contributing nations, members, including Canada, do in order to stiffen 
that defense in order to provide deterrence for Putin to attack, right? How, how do you deter him from that? So let's deal with the utterly nonsensical um, idea of uh, an air exclusion zone, a no-fly zone, et cetera, over Ukraine. You know, whoever would suggest that, um, I, I just can't understand any analysis. So, but let's translate that into what it means, right? It means in order to have an air exclusion zone and no-fly zone is that we are going to engage in combat with Russian pilots. We are going to suppress their air defense systems on the border and likely now in Ukraine, etc. We are essentially declaring war as NATO on Russia. So when people, idiotically, um, suggest that this is a viable military solution, um, that we can just declare it. Um, they have no idea what it means in terms of transactional activities. And more than that, they have no idea what those transactional activities would equate to in terms of a formal declaration of war on Russia. So Ukraine is not a NATO member. The idea that NATO would do a forward defense into Ukrainian territory um, is a declaration of war from NATO to Russia. So we got to put that in mind. So let's, let's just think of all those people suggesting that as being the complete idiots that they are, because they are, right? So more realistically then, what can NATO do and what can Canada do within NATO? And the last comment I think is super important. Nothing Canada should contemplate or do or announce um, should be done in isolation. Canada is at best a mid-power. Militarily, we struggle to play that role, uh, although the quality uh, of, of our force is certainly world-class, its size means, quite frankly, that we are, um, we're a flag in the ground. We're value-added in terms of the quality, but in terms of size of commitment, you know, we're not going to make a fundamental difference as, a, as the size of the, the commitment piece. The quality of the people would obviously make a difference as we've demonstrated in Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere. But what can we do? So, you know, behind the scenes, it is about Canada pushing for, I believe, the most robust response from NATO possible. I am convinced that we would have been, regardless of political party, by the way, we would have been at the forefront of pushing for this statement that came out uh, within the last hour from the heads of state, because it's kind of in, in line with what has been our standard NATO policy for years. I, I, one of my other jobs in uniform was Director General of International Security Policy. Director of NATO worked for me. Uh, I look at that statement and we could have crafted that statement um, every year for the last few decades. So declaratory pieces can be, they can be, um, they can be swept aside by people who say it's only words, et cetera, but they're necessary. They're part of the diplomatic engagement and they do show intent. And then behind the intent, what you need to do is start to actually physically position troops on the Eastern side. I don't think I've seen any analysis, um, any meaningful analysis, I should say, that would suggest that Putin would 
continue from Ukraine and go into NATO, et cetera. Um, obviously, if you were living in the Baltic states, given the number of Russian speakers there, et cetera, you would be worried about a Crimean-like approach. But let's remind ourselves the Baltic states are NATO countries. And so what you're seeing um, through all NATO uh, members, including Canada, is formal declarations of not just additional physical supports today. Canada made the announcement of an additional 460 people. I think we made it at the end of last week. By the way, great opportunity for me to say those people who said, oh, 460 is going to stretch us thin because of the Canadian forces. Again, idiots. You have no idea what you're talking about. Because yesterday we announced, I think, an additional 3,400 3, being put on standby. So we need to do those two things, right? We need to be willing to augment our footprint in the ground because we need to show that all Canadian, uh, correction, all NATO nations are physically involved in the protection of the Eastern flank of NATO. And then we need to demonstrate, and we can do this concretely by warning off, meaning increasing the readiness of at-home forces to be prepared to add even greater presence. I, I think, you know, we can debate the numbers, et cetera. I, I don't think that's a useful debate, um, but I would look to every NATO nation doing those two macro moves. But to be clear, what you're talking about is in terms of reinforcing the alliance itself. Absolutely, absolutely, right? You, you, are, you are reminding Putin of the unity and the cohesion of NATO. And you are reminding him um, of the, the, the cost of, of even contemplating moving into to a NATO nation, right? And let's be clear, stand aside the nuclear arsenal of Russia. They do not have the capacity or capability to effectively win against a fully prepared, fully positioned NATO. Well, Mike, cognizant of your time, uh, we'll uh, close things off there. I, busy times. I don't know if you have a chance to, to read anything these days, although I'm sure your PhD supervisor is uh, cognizant of that. Um, what are you reading if you've got some time or what should you? So, so I, I can't remember what I told you last time. I'm pretty sure it was something different. Anyways, I'm, I'm reading um, today's book is, is Russell Wigley's The American uh, Way of War. And I, I, I put it hard on the heels of The Canadian Way of War by Bernd Horn. Um, because it, it, and actually it's very applicable uh, to what we're seeing today. Um, and it really gives an insight of how did we get to not just how we think about conflict from a Canadian and American experience, those two books, um, but why do we currently have the militaries we have, right? Or why we don't have the militaries we don't have in, in our particular case. Uh, so, you know, Wigley's book is, 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 is really illuminating because it reminds us um, of a place that we find Canada in, which is the Americans didn't really have a, um, a national security strategy till the end of the Second World War, where they became a real global power. Maybe there's a great job of collecting a variety of different writers that talks their way through that piece and everything else. Um, I, I would argue, you know, Canada finds itself not a world power, et cetera, but it is a reminder uh, where our historic roots are, how we ended up where we're at. 
and that we operate for all intensive purposes without a foreign or a security policy in this country. Okay, well, Mike, on that note, uh, thanks again for coming on to, to share your perspective on what we're seeing unfolding in Ukraine right now. Thanks, thanks very much, Dave. Appreciate the time. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like our stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaica support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa, and thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed.